Well, good morning again. Long time no see. Um, we are back in our study of First Timothy this morning, and it uh, wonderfully uh, folds in with our Global Outreach Sunday last week, um, in which uh, Stuart Rao was here to talk about ministry in uh, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, and uh, the Balkans, and um, uh, in the providence of God, we have ended up here with uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Before we uh, turn there and stand once again to read it, um, please, would you pray with me? We sing your mighty power, O God. We declare that you are the righteous one. We have seen that you have set the sun in the sky and the moon shines bright at your command. The full moon of last night, lasting into the morning, demonstrates to us that the seasons come and the seasons go. And the years come and the years go by, and the epochs and all of human history. And we are reminded and assured that you are in control of all, whether there are wars or rumors of war, whether there are difficulties or blessings. You have ordained all that is taking place in your goodness. And for that, we sing your mighty power. We ask this morning that you would fill our minds with an understanding of your word. Fill our hearts with the love and affection for you and your word. We pray that our wills would be motivated to live out the message of the gospel, the message of your word that we learn from this morning. So we give ourselves to that task now, and we do so in the name of Christ, who is our Savior. Amen. Second, excuse me, First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there, whatever means that you have to look at the Word of God. And would you stand, please? That is our custom here to demonstrate that we are giving attention to the reading of God's word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And we declare and appreciate its power this morning. First Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. The word of God. First of all then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Title of the message this morning is God's Priorities in Prayer. And so obviously the question is, what are God's priorities in prayer? 
and we want to answer that this morning. What does he want us to pray about? What does he want us to pray for? There are lots of things that we can pray about, right? Lots of things that we can bring before God, but there is a particular priority in prayer that Paul gives to us in this passage. By the way, the subject of this passage, as we just read it, is not prayer. The subject is salvation. Um, It talks a lot about prayer. In fact, one writer said salvation is the subject. Prayer is the context for that salvation. So this passage is not just about prayer, and nor is it about the extent of the atonement. It is about the fact that God's salvation is for all people. It's soteriological. It is about salvation. His salvation is for all people, and it is not, to put it another way, salvation is not restricted to some, as the false teachers were doing. They were restricting salvation in the gospel to just a certain group of people, and Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It is much more extensive than that. In fact, what we are seeing this morning, this is simple, if you want to note this and take it with you, Christ's salvation is for all people, so, since it is, we are to pray for that purpose, and we are to work for that purpose. Salvation, Christ's salvation is for all people, so we are to pray, and we are to work to that end, for the salvation of all people, all who will believe, and we are to work for it, we are to do certain things that people will believe. Again, salvation is a subject, but prayer is the context, so we're going to talk about prayer In fact, first, we're going to see this in verses 1 through 2, that we are to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. In verse 1, first of all, Paul says, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. First of all, prayer is of greatest importance. And he urges that prayer for Timothy and for the church in Ephesus. It is of first importance. Paul started the letter where he said, Timothy, my true child in the faith, I urged you to stay in Macedonia and to teach these false teachers to stop them from teaching another gospel, other teaching. I urged you. And then he goes through the gospel, how the, the law was not meant to be a means for the gospel, it is for, but it is for people, all sorts of sinners to come to Christ. And Paul says, and I was one of them, the foremost of all sinners. And it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. For this reason, he said in verse 16 of chapter 1, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. All of chapter 1 was a defense of the gospel, not the law as a means of salvation, but grace and mercy. And Paul was a a taster of that and an experiencer of that and it had been given to him. 
So then Paul, so he says, I urge you to, to put a stop to those who are, who are meddling with the gospel. And first and foremost, of first importance, is prayer. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. The first thing he says you need to do, Timothy, in fighting these false teachers is prayer, but also a certain kind of prayer. He says also in verse 1, prayer comes in many forms. Notice how he said, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, he uses four different words for prayer, and we could spend a lot of time going through each of those four words, and that's not the point. By focusing too much on the, the subtle differences in these words, we run the risk of ending up not doing what he's saying to do, and that is to pray. It's easier to study about prayer than it is to pray, isn't it? It is. It's easier to study the words that mean prayer than it is to offer words of prayer. So when he says entreaties and prayers and, and uh, petitions and thanksgiving, he's saying there are lots of different kinds of prayers. There are many ways you can pray for people, and I want you to employ them all. The one that is not like the other, of course, is thanksgivings. Because with thanksgiving, our focus in prayer focuses upon God rather than upon us or the other person. And we begin thanking God for people, not just talking to him about God, uh, talk, talking to God about people, but we are giving thanks to God for others. So giving thanks moves the focus of prayer to God. And also in verse 1, he says, pray for all people. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And that was the problem in Ephesus. The false teachers were saying, no, we have a circle of people that we pray about. We have a circle of people that we're interested in. We have a circle of people that the gospel goes to. We don't care about other people because we have the truth. Talk to God on behalf of all people. That's what we're saying here. Go to God and talk to him about people in many kinds of ways and give thanks for them. We are to pray for all people. And he uses the word all throughout this passage. In fact, if you see the, the next slide, here are what we see in verses 1 through 6. He says, pray for all people in verse 1. Pray for all who are in authority in verse 2. God desires all people to be saved in verse 4. And Christ gave himself for all in verse 6. Paul is emphasizing something here. He is saying that we cannot exclude people from our proclamation of the gospel. Because the proclamation of the gospel is to go to all people. And so we are not to be like the false teachers. It's only those who keep the law. It's only those who keep the, 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 the righteousness according to the law. Paul already put that to bed, said, look, I, I was the foremost of sinners. He was a rabbi. He was a godly man from the standpoint of the law. But he recognized that he was the foremost of sinners and we are to pray for all. This is about salvation. And the false teachers were misusing the law to teach that you can be saved by the law. No. 
So we are to pray many prayers of most importance, and we are to pray for all people. To put it another way, God's salvation is not just for a select group of people. It was for all people. It was not just for those who were righteous. And Paul himself was an enemy of the gospel. that God showed him mercy. Then we see in verse 2 that we are to pray especially for those who are in authority, whether they are political leaders or whether they are in authority in some other way. He says in verse, verse 2, pray for all men. And then he says, for kings and all. There's that word all again. All who are in authority. So kings, that is rulers, prime ministers, presidents, kings, whatever. And then all others who are in authority, governors, mayors, the police, your boss, your parents, your teacher, whomever it may be, all who have authority. And then he gives a reason so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all dignity godliness and dignity. There is a special need for us to pray for our leaders. All authority is derivative. What I mean by that is that all authority that anyone has derives from God. First, excuse me, Romans 13, Paul tells that, that tells us that, that all authority comes from God and any authority that a president has, that a governor has, that a parent has, that anyone has, it derives from God. God gives that authority, but it ultimately comes from him. He also says in, in Romans 13 that all of our leaders that we are to be subject to, they are servants of God for good. Joe Biden is a servant of God for good. Jay Inslee is a servant of God for good. Your mayor, your city councilman, your county commissioners... All those who are placed above us, the boss who is a thorn in your side, the supervisor that won't give you a break, that authority that they have is derived from God, and it is for the purpose of good. They are servants of God. They don't know that they're servants, do they? Joe Biden doesn't know that he's a servant for good or a servant of God, but he is because God in his providence and God in his goodness is working out world affairs according to his his good purposes. And when we pray to them, here's the thing, to the extent that they benefit from our prayers on their behalf, we benefit from the answers to those prayers. Jeremiah 29.7 says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you have welfare. Jeremiah is speaking to the the exiles under God's judgment by the surrounding nations have been taken into captivity. Where are they? Anybody know? Babylon. Where do we live? Babylon, of all in, for all intents and purposes. And when we seek the welfare of Spokane Valley, Spokane, Green Acres, wherever it is you live, if, when we seek that welfare by praying for our leaders, we benefit as well. For in its welfare is your welfare. 
We should pray more than we complain. I, I don't know about you, but I'm so guilty of yelling at the TV so much. Aren't, aren't you? We should pray more than we complain. We, we would rather complain about our leaders than we pray for them. I don't know that I'm stepping on your toes right now. I've been convicted of this, studying this message. We would rather complain about our leaders than pray for them. Or we would pray, God strike them dead. We would rather protest than pray. We don't have to like our leaders, or, and we don't have to agree with them. In fact, if we do not like them and don't, do not agree with them, all the more reason to pray for them. We don't just pray for the people that we like. And that was the problem in Ephesus, and Paul is getting it. He said, pray for all people. You know who was in, in, uh, in the position of authority at this time? In, the, in Ephesus, in the Roman Empire, Nero. Nero, who took Christians and used them as human torches, lighting them on fire for entertainment. Jay Ansley has not done that. Joe Biden has not done that. I think most of our leaders are enemies of the gospel. Honestly, I think that they are. But the... the, the the believers in Ephesus and the Roman Empire did not have the opportunity to choose their next dictator like we do. We live in a unique time. Jesus said we are to love our neighbors. And you might love Phil next door and you pray for him and you pray for his salvation. And then there's people across the street, mm, not so much. Love your neighbors. You know what else he said? Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. We don't do that. We would rather complain than pray for Jay Inslee or Kamala Harris or Joe Biden. We are commanded to do that. To pray for them and to pray for their good. I Again, I... I'm tired of yelling at the TV, and I probably will continue to do it, but uh, this week I am convicted of this. And this applies to your employers and uh, your spiritual leaders as well. We, uh, rather than just complaining and talking and bickering and talking about them, we should be praying for them. Because your children hear you. When you complain about the governor and the senator and the president and the vice president and the pastor and your boss read a story, I don't know if it's, if it's true or not, but there was a, a take your child to work day with his father, took his daughter, and so they're there with all the co-workers and all around with this little girl, and the, the little girl was very sullen, and the father said to, to her in front of all the co-workers, honey, I thought you were so excited to come to work with daddy today, and she said, but where are the clowns? You you said you work with a bunch of clowns. <laughs> Your children are listening to our complaints. The ultimate prayer on behalf of others is salvation. I mean, you can pray for a health, uh, cancer surgery, whatever it may be, a good trip. 
But the ultimate prayer for others is the salvation. And that is the point of this passage. God desires all to come to a knowledge of the truth. We're going to get to it in a minute, but he says this is good and acceptable in the sight of of the Savior who desires all to be saved. He desires Jay Inslee to be saved and Joe Biden to be saved and Kamala Harris and all of those people. That is a desire. And that includes our leaders. And we're going to get get there in a minute. But in the intermediary, there is a goal of our prayers, he says, so that we might lead a tranquil and godly life in all godliness and dignity, that we might have peace, that we might have freedom, peace and quiet, be able to just live a life of dignity. The atmosphere that should come from us praying for our leaders is there is an atmosphere, atmosphere of freedom and peace and quiet, but it also results in our character changing. Godliness and dignity, in other words, righteousness, the word godliness, Paul will use throughout the pastoral epistles, and it's a word that that means someone who is God-fearing, but in their attitude and in their behavior, it is demonstrable that others see that. And when we live righteous lives, what is the purpose of us living righteous lives? Let your light shine before the world. It's the gospel. We are to pray for our leaders so that we might live lives of freedom in which the gospel is not impeded. The purpose of praying for our leaders is that we would have a platform for the gospel. He's not just talking about, well, I get to, you get to have your own property and live a life of freedom, right to bear arms, freedom of speech, it's a free country and all that. That can become very selfish. Don't view your leaders as a means to a better life. That's idolatry. And all the pitches that we get at election time is, I can make your life better. I will do this for you. I will work for you. I get it. I understand it. But if we buy that whole, whole hog and we think that elected officials are going to make, give us better lives, we are mistaken. Only God is the one that can give us a better life and not man. Our prayers for our nation should always be that we would live freely for the opportunity of the gospel, not the spread of democracy, but the spread of the gospel. And that is what America has been known for. America has sent more missionaries abroad in all of human history than any other nation. And we want to continue that. And that should be the purpose of who we vote for. And and when we pray for our leaders, that we might continue to propagate the gospel around the corner and around the world. And so this election week... Remember that you have choices that the, the, the Ephesians did not have. Pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, especially include leaders and, and those in authority. Pray for the purposes of peace and righteousness and pray that we would have opportunities for the gospel when you vote and when you choose for whom you vote. Make it about the gospel, not you having a life of freedom. That can become very, very selfish.
So pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Excuse me. Now in verses 3 through 6, pray for God's priorities. Remember, that's the, 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 the subject that is... That is the the title of our message. Pray for God's priorities. Verse 3, he says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What is good and pleasing in the sight of God? That we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. That we do not exclude anyone. That we pray for our leaders. That we might live quiet and tranquil lives in all godliness and dignity for the purpose of the gospel. There's no mystery here when he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Well, what's he talking about? He just said what it is, praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, and God is pleased with that. But why is God pleased with that? Verse 4, God desires salvation for all. That's why. This is good and in acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God, that you pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people because he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Coming to the knowledge of the truth is what salvation means. He desires people to be saved when they come to a knowledge, a full understanding of the truth of the gospel. And he's going to say what that truth is in just a minute, that there's only one God and there's only one Savior who is Jesus Christ. And when people come to that understanding and that knowledge, then they are saved. And it is his desire that all would be saved. But we know that even in the statement of that, we, are see, we see that all will not be saved. This doesn't mean that this is the will of God, that all people would be saved. And some people have taken this to, to, for the, the heresy of universalism. Because they say, well, if God wills, if it's his desire for all people to, sit, to be saved, then all people are going to be saved. But again, there's just in the statement of that, there's the assumption that all are not saved and all will not be saved and all will not come to a knowledge of the church, truth. God desires a lot of things from me. He's given me commands. For instance, he's told me, Ben, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and and your mind and your strength. And he desires me to do that. He desires that I obey. Do I obey him? Sometimes. Sometimes not. Maybe mostly. Maybe not mostly. I don't know. But as God's desire, there are certain things that he says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Are you fully sanctified now? No. You're progressing in sanctification, and God wants you to be sanctified. But when he says he desires all men to be saved, he's not saying that all are going to be saved. It just means this, this is the heart of God. He has a heart for people. There is this universal scope of salvation that it has come to all mankind. It is not universalism, but you have all of mankind, and God says, here, before you, before all of mankind, is the cross of Christ. It's for all of you to see, but all do not believe. And then he says in verse 5 that there is only one God. 
And that's where um, the, it's important for Paul to, to make that point to those false teachers that there's one God for all people. He says in verse 5, there is only one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We start with monotheism. There's only one God. And when he says there is one God, he's echoing the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There is only one God. There has only ever been one God. There can only ever be one God. There is not a God of the Jews and one of the Gentiles and one of the pagans, and one of the Hindus, and one of the Muslims, there is only one God. All the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. So said the psalmist. There is only one God, and then also in verse 5, there is only one mediator. There is one God and one mediator. There's only one go-between. In fact, this is it right here, Jesus Christ it is the cross of Christ, it is the person of Christ that, that is the mediator between God who is infinite and holy and unapproachable and we who are lowly and sinful and lost. We have to have a mediator. We cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We cannot be good enough. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And there is one mediator, and Paul is making the point for the false teachers, it's not Moses, it's not Abraham, it's not Isaac, it's not Jacob. It is not the law, it is not the priestly caste, it is not apostles. It is the man Christ Jesus. Why? He's the only one who qualified. 100% God, 100% man, he is God our Savior and he is the, and he is the God man. And he lived a sinful life so that he alone gave a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. No one else could. No one else could. Jesus is the only perfect mediator because he himself is God. And because as the only mediator, Jesus completed the perfect work of mediation by being a ransom on our behalf, a substitute. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one. It's exclusive. We see the exclusivity of the gospel. Yes, it's expansive and universal in its scope that it is, that it is seen by all, but it is exclusive in, because broad is the, is, the, is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to salvation, Jesus said. It is narrow. There is only one mediator. He is not Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, the Pope, Moses, anyone else, priests, pastors, no one but Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men, no one qualified. And then we see in verse 6, there is only one means of salvation. There's only one God, God is one who writes the rules. There's only one mediator, he is Christ Jesus and there is only one means of salvation. God devised the perfect means which are just and equitable for people to come to Christ. Verse 6. 
Christ Jesus is that one mediator who gave himself. He did so voluntarily. He gave up his life for you, O Christian. He put his life on the line as a ransom for all. Once again, a price paid. And he saw you as valuable. God loved you so much that he gave his son the most valuable thing to him for you. As your substitute. You, the sinner who deserved to be on the cross. And Christ took it for us. And he was a ransom for all. And I believe this is not talking about the extent of the atonement. But it means that the ransom is sufficient for all who will receive it. Again, it is sufficient for all human beings, but it is only effective for those who will receive it. There is only one God who desires all to be saved, and there's only one Savior, and there's only one means, and it is the only one that is, that is equitable. Because if he had one means of salvation for the, for the Jews, and one for the Muslims, and one for the Hindus, and one for the Buddhists, and one for the Mormons, and on and on and on, the unity of the gospel is fair and equitable and just, and it is open to all who will believe. He gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. That explains what the ransom for for all means. It is in what grammarians call, it is in apposition. The ransom, what is the ransom? It is a testimony to all people. Matthew 20, 28 says this, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said the word many here, not the word all. But the ransom is for all who will believe. It is sufficient for all, but it is only effective for those whom God has chosen and elected for salvation. But he voluntarily gave himself at the appointed time as a substitute for sinners. Galatians 4.4 says this. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law, so that there might, he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The fullness of times. All of world history was working up to this one point where God says, this is the day of salvation. This is the appearance of the Son of God. This is the fullness of times. There is the, at, at that time, there was peace in the Roman Empire. There were roads that were made throughout all of the Roman Empire for the free flow of the gospel. In, in Israel, where there was this messianic hope that was, that was uh, rising to a fevered pitch And God said, this is it. This is the time. And so the ransom for all is a testimony to the world that at this particular moment, God sent forth his son. To some, it is a testimony of salvation. And to some, his ransom is a testimony of judgment. But his ransom was a testimony to all. 
the death of Christ applied to the whole world and that all see it. Some are saved by it and some are judged by it. We are to pray God's priorities. And so here it is. God's priority is people. God's priority is people. And it is our responsibility to talk to God on behalf of others. Notice this quote by Guy King. He says, even those who do not allow you to speak to them about God cannot prevent you speaking to God about them. When we were in seminary, we lived in a guest house, and Tara was like a nanny. And when we took the job, the couple hired us because we were seminary students and could be trusted, I guess, and said, oh, there's one thing. Do not talk to us about God. Ever. Not ever. So we prayed. We talked to God on behalf of them, and we prayed for them. And the wife's father died. And the grandma asked me to do the funeral, the very first funeral I ever did. So the family got to hear the gospel. God has a sense of humor. He's, the world is full of irony. I, can't, I don't know about their salvation. I don't think that they did come to Christ. But God is the one who brings up those opportunities. God's priority is their salvation. When we, when God's priority is the salvation of people. He sent His Son. He loved the world so much that He gave His only Son. And we should never minimize and think of the gospel as some kind of band-aid solution. Well, yeah, I know they need the gospel, but they really need a, a, a counselor. Really? Do you know how that minimizes the gospel and minimizes the, the sacrifice of Christ? He is the solution to your problem of sin. He is the solution to your marriage problems. He is the solution to your illness. He is the solution to your sexual identity problems. He is the solution to the war in Israel and every other war. He, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, this God who desires all to be saved, he is the solution for all things. And so, he should be, people should be the priorities in our prayers. Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Pray God's priorities, which is people and their salvation. And finally, in verse 7, practice what you pray. If you're praying for the salvation of others, practice what it means to bring them to salvation. Paul says in verse 7, for this, the testimony of the ransom of Christ at the proper time, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying, he said. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul didn't just pray and just sit back and wait for things to happen, which we do sometimes. We're praying for salvation of lots of people, but we never lift a finger to do anything about it. We don't pray and sit back. We must do what Paul did. So give actions to your prayers for salvation. Give action to those prayers. Paul did. He was an example. He was a preacher. The word preacher means he was a herald. 
He just announced to the Gentiles, salvation has come to the world. A savior has come. It is good news for all people, like the angel said the morning that Jesus was born. A savior has been born for you who is Christ the Lord. And he just announced that. He was a herald that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. But he was also an apostle, one that was sent specifically to the Gentiles so that he gave to them with authority, this is the way. There's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And it is through the sacrifice of Christ that you come to him. There's only one way. And then he taught them and taught them and taught them. And we should do the same. Paul even prayed for his captors, didn't he? The Philippian jailer came to Christ. He stood before Agrippa and other leaders. And what did he do? Did he just kind of, I'm going to just bide my time. I'm praying in private for them. No, he spoke the gospel to them. He told them his testimony and he gave them the gospel. When he says, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, he said, this is, look, this is God's idea, not mine. He is the one who has appointed me, and he has appointed us to the same thing. The gospel is for all people. The gospel for all people. The false teachers in, in Ephesus were saying, no, it's only just for those who get, who who have the law and are keeping the law, those who know the the myths and the genealogies and all those things, who are tuned in to these secret things, know the gospel is for all people. And listen to this. Paul makes clear he was appointed to proclaim this very gospel to the very people the false teachers were excluding. Paul makes clear he was appointed to proclaim this very gospel to the very people that the false teachers were excluding the Gentiles. It's not restricted to any people in any country or any town. It's, it's for all people. William Carey, before he went out and became one of the most famous missionaries of all time, preaching in his church and, and uh, giving a, a call to missions. One of the leaders came up to him afterwards and said, Young man, if God is going to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help and ours. Wrong. He will not do it without us. We are the method. Prayer is, is the context of praying for other people. And we should not be exclusive in the gospel. The gospel is not just now for those unreached people groups. God desires all to be saved. Your unsaved neighbor, the guy that lives on the right or the guy that lives behind you, he is just as lost as the people in Bosnia or the tribal person in Papua New Guinea. They're just as lost and they need the Savior just the same. And we need to care for them just the same. And we are not qualified to send money to missions or to go to missions if we are not doing that here. We need to do the work of the gospel here as well as there because it's easy for us to send people and it's easy for us to send money. But to have a real heart for missions, we have to realize that the gospel is for everyone in our community and do our part. 
in conclusion. What we do know is what we don't know. Who will be saved? We don't know that. You know what that means? It means we treat all people as though they might believe in Christ. We treat everybody the same, with the same care and the same love. It's the the equity of the cross. There's one God, one mediator. It's for anyone who believes. And we treat them all the same. And and sometimes we don't. If we had a, a group of people standing up here, and they're all different. And some of you might say, well, I'm going to pray for the girl because she's, she's, she's cute. Or I'm going to pray for the guy because he's got this outgoing personality and we want him to come to Christ. We pray for the guy in the middle because he looks broken and he really needs the gospel. But those three on the end, they're obviously a lost cause. Why even pray for them? I was one of the three guys on the end. And such were some of you. Somebody prayed for me. And we should do the same. Next, what we do know is that God cares for all. And he provided one solution for sin to anyone who comes to a knowledge of the truth. We know we are to pray for all. We saw that. We know we are to proclaim the gospel to all. We have seen that. And we know... That in the end, salvation is of the Lord. It's not our work. We are to leave the salvation of souls ultimately in God's hands. Thank you, Father, for your word, for the charge to prayer, the charge to pray the priority of people in salvation. May we be faithful to do so, not just to pray, but do the work of of an evangelist and do what is needed for us to bring people to a knowledge of the truth of Christ. It is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.